Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. This week I've been watching with great interest in the events that are currently unfolding at Asbury University. I don't know if you've heard, but on Wednesday, in the middle of a normal day for the students there, they were attending chapel, and at the end of chapel, something happened. God showed up in a unique way, in a special way. They have not yet left that chapel. It's been five days and ongoing since then. Uh, I just, about a half an hour ago, got on uh, Asbury's website and discovered there are 23 additional universities and colleges that have sent students to Asbury to experience what's happening there because it seems to be the Holy Spirit has shown up and anointed the students there in what appears to be the new outworking and revival. This has caused me to remember my own experience at Wheaton College when we were when I was students in the 1980s, we spent a lot of time praying for revival. There had been one in 1950, and it was a significant revival, and it changed, I think, the, the calculus, the framework of Christianity across the world. People that were influenced by that revival in 1950 were Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade, Billy Graham, you know that name, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. These are some important people in the faith, but they were influenced because of that experience. And I spent a lot of time at Wheaton praying for revival. I wanted to be part of something similar to that experience where God would be present and would change us all. Unfortunately for me and my time at Wheaton, that didn't happen. After I graduated, though, revival did occur in 1995. And my wife, Sarah, was a student there. While I missed out on it, I heard many of the stories of the students and faculty and staff who were present. Of course, Sarah had an experience too there. And I continued to and continue to have a longing for the Holy Spirit to be present in the same way in my life and in our common life here together at Grace and Grove City College. The reason I bring this up to you today is because the passage from James, as we close out this letter, is a lesson in revivals. What James tells us at the end of this letter is the stuff of revival. So as I prayed and reflected upon God's word, and at the same time kept one ear online and watching and praying for Asbury University, I kept asking the Lord, what would it take for that to happen here? Lord, what is needed for a new work in our little space of your kingdom? James, well, not specifically speaking of revivals, is yet speaking of that kind of work that he expects to happen in the lives of his readers. That is, James wants his reader at the end of the letter to walk with the Lord, to be in community in such a way that the Lord has the freedom to do the work that he wants to do, to lead and guide his people into into freedom, true freedom that comes only from Jesus as a result of saving grace. 
So what is James' letter to us tonight? He says, pray. Pray. Pray when? Pray all the time. Um, This is not an unusual thing in the epistles. They oftentimes do say something at the end of a letter, like you should pray, or you ought to pray, or please be praying for me, or be in prayer for the saints. So he ends his letter in a a normal way in that sense, but not the normal ending for an epistle. Because he's got something very particular on his heart and mind for his reader. When are we to pray? He says, in all circumstances. Verse 13, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So when suffering and trouble falls upon you, turn to God for help. When things are going well and you are cheerful, praise God. When you find yourself in this specific kind of trouble that includes illness, it seems that James says some extra care is needed. And so in verse 14, he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Call the elders to pray over you. Who are the elders? Those elders are the godly and wise, mature, spiritual leaders among us. Peppered throughout this congregation. And we're to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. The Roman church at the Council of Trent finds this passage to be the reason for the sacrament of extreme unction. So they take it seriously in that regard. Oil was a well-known medicinal agent in the ancient Near East. You'll remember in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, the Good Samaritan. He takes the, the one that was beaten up on the road to Jerusalem. He takes that injured one to, a, to an inn, and he cares for him by pouring, pouring uh, wine as a disinfectant and oil as a salve on his wounds. The Old Testament identifies this practice as symbolic of setting apart an individual for something special. Specifically, the Old Testament understands when oil was poured on you in this kind of a way that you were in service to God, and that there would be a blessing on you. Uh, it's interesting, too, that this idea of oil is, is part of our baptismal liturgy now, too. So next week, we'll have the opportunity to gather together at church, and we're going to have a baptismal service, and three of our college students will be baptized And at the end of their experience of being immersed in water, we're going to set them apart in prayer with the seal of the Holy Spirit. We will pray over them and we will anoint them with oil and we will say, receive the sign of the cross as a token of your new life in Christ, in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world and the flesh and the devil and continue as his faithful soldier and servant to the end of your days. By anointing a sick person with oil, the elders symbolically set that person aside for the Lord's special attention as they pray. And this prayer is the efficacious action 
That is the valuable or the worthwhile or the significant action, though. It's the prayer that's important, not the anointing. Prayer is the agent of healing because it's offered in faith. Not the faith of a sick person, but that of those who are praying. Verse 15, the first part says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. When you're sick, most of the time, at least this is the way I am when I'm sick, I'm consumed by that illness. I, I generally have a hard time praying when I'm sick, except maybe something weak and feeble and simple like, Lord, please help me. I don't have the words to pray usually. And sometimes I don't even have the faith to pray in my circumstances that they would change or that there's any hope of getting better. These are the prayers that are offered, though, in accordance with the will of God in faith, that God's healing hand would be upon the one who is ill. And these prayers that are in accordance with the will of God can be prayed in faith. The Lord raises the ill from the sickbed, not the one who prays. And James says that in addition to praying and anointing with oil, there ought to be one other thing that needs to be part of this process. He says confession needs to be an aspect of the healing process. The second part of verse 15 and 16 says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. How does confession tie in? Confession is making visible what is internal and hidden. It shows or is spoken or identified a, a hidden thing that's causing us to be sick. And it brings into light those things or ideas or behaviors that we hide and are ashamed of. Consider Adam and Eve. They were made perfectly in the mortal image of God. And after they were tempted and they sinned, they immediately are embarrassed and they hide themselves. And we're told by James here to do the opposite. Not to hide. Not to hide those things that we're embarrassed by or that we've done wrong, but to unload them, to open them up, to speak about them, to say these things that we might be embarrassed about, certainly, but those things that we've done and said and thought that are wrong. It's possible there's a double meaning of this idea that's offered here, too, that the physical healing will come, but also that spiritual healing would come as well. Remember, Jesus, he constantly demonstrated this when he would forgive sins first, with somebody only later to heal them physically. Jesus did that regularly. Uh, Luke chapter five, the next chapter uh, from what we read today, Jesus uh, is in a room and he's teaching in that room. And all of a sudden the, the roof opens up because there was a paralytic who had four friends and they couldn't get in to introduce Jesus to the paralytic or the other way around. And so they tear open the roof and drop him down in front of Jesus. And, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> and everybody, of course, wonders how that could be possible. Then he says, to prove it to you, 
you can get up now off of your mat and walk. It's important, though, as a caution to note that James is not teaching, though, that all illnesses will be healed if people would simply call upon the elders or try to make themselves have enough faith or pray with enough conviction. Healing, when it does come, is always a gift from God and sovereign over those who is sovereign over those circumstances. It does not follow, though, that the lack of faith on the part of the sick person is the reason they may not be healed. It could be that James is considering here the final resurrection as the healing moment because of the salvation that has occurred in the life of the individual. Sometimes confession is needed within the community before the healing can take place. So James says, if he has committed sin. We're all whole individuals. We work together where one area and when one area of life is out of order, all of the, we should expect any or all of the other areas of our lives to notice it or to feel it or to experience that out of orderedness. And so sin can be the cause of an illness. First Corinthians, Paul goes very uh, far in this regard. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup for anyone who eats the bread or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Sometimes sin takes root deeply in us and it affects us even to other inabilities. What is sin after all, but a spiritual sickness that needs the healing touch of God? This soul sickness can be manifest in physical, social, relational, financial, intellectual and emotional ways in our lives. James returns to the idea of prayer for one another in verse 16. No longer, though, in verse 16 are the elders in view, but that all in the community of faith are to do this. We're all to hear confession. Perhaps James thinks that we may have things against one another or we've sinned against one another. You know how it is in a family when we're close together, we work together and we sleep together and eat together and, and do families together and bonfires together and all kinds of things as a family. We can kind of pick at each other, too, and we can disagree about ideas and have difficulties with one another. And James says we're to pray for healing. Because it's possible that speaking ill of each other or mocking others or accusing each other falsely or convicting each other in our hearts for something or maybe even as simple as complaining or grumbling. Those things we might have against one another, those are the things that are in the way. They're impeding God's ability to work in our lives and maybe even to heal us. So the idea of prayer is repeated and emphasized because he wants his people to hear him clearly. The community is crucial in these areas. We're to pray for each other. And he says at the end of verse 16, because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. 
think of this when when I sin against you in some way and then confess it to you. I need you to pray for me. And that prayer unites us. It frees me from that wickedness that was hidden in my heart that I thought of or that seemed so important that I should hold something against you. James gives us an example of Elijah. And we might say, oh, hold on a second. <laughs> He's talking about one of the great prophets. I'm out of the picture, right? I'm not that. But he says it in an interesting way. Verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was a man. He was a sinful man. He was just like you. And so he's emphasizing Elijah here to say that prayer is not to be confined, com- confined to a group of super saints wearing white collars and flashy dresses. That's not it. Righteous persons are any who are saved by the blood of Jesus and are made clean through his through faith in him. So Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Why? Because true prayer has power. Through faith in Christ, after confessing sins, you're given the righteousness of Jesus because he has taken the penalty of those sins from you on the cross and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to you now, the new believer, and you are made righteous. You have that righteousness of Jesus. And so when we gather together and pray for one another, it's as if Elijah is there praying. That's incredible. James gives a final word to us. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, this is a call to action. This is not the normal New Testament kind of ending. an epistle. Throughout the entirety of the letter, James has given us statements of expectation, things that we're to do. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, faith without works is dead. And if that's true, then we got to go to work. Let's go to work. Every reader is encouraged to help others obey these commands. When we see a brother or sister who's wandered from the truth, we're to, we're to go get them, we're to bring them back. And in doing so, we'll be saving that sinner from spiritual death, which is the ultimate end of living sinfully. Romans says the wages of sin is death. And then, of course, remember what James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 said. But each person is tempted when he is lured by and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. We're to guard 
against this for one another. We're to watch out for our brother and sister. We're to speak words of truth into our lives and say, it seems like you're heading down a path here that is dangerous. Don't go there. Watch out. Can I pray for you? So let me return to the idea of revival for a minute. As I've studied revivals over the years, they are marked by a couple of key factors. I think actually all of them have these factors. Number one, youthfulness. Middle schoolers, did you hear me? High schoolers, college students, youthfulness. God seems to work in revivals with the young people. And he invites the young people oftentimes to lead the way in these kinds of experiences and opportunities. Youthfulness is the first one. The second is the clear and powerful proclamation of God's word. That is always the case in a revival. Third is prayer. Fourth is confession. It's always there in revival. And then finally, as a result of these things, is praise and thanksgiving. It's worship of God. Because people who have experienced the holiness of God falling upon them realize their sins are forgiven. They have the righteousness of God on them. And the only thing they can do is praise God. Thank you, God, for giving life to me. Those are the characteristics of revival. Last week on Wednesday at four o'clock, your grace staff met together to talk and plan and pray together. And at that meeting, Ethan asked us an interesting question. And we pondered for a little bit. The question was, what has been going on at Grace recently? Because it seems to us as we've been leading in worship and preaching and participating in the common life of this community together, seems like the Lord has been doing something really special with us in our, our times together. Maybe it's the new building. Worshiping together in one place. Yes. Maybe it's the music. So incredible. Yeah. Well, maybe it's the baptisms we've experienced here and outside and those that we know that are coming. Yeah, it's that too. But... No, maybe it's the, the community of fellowship that we've been experiencing together a little bit last night around a big bonfire and other times in other places. Yes, I think that's it, too. Maybe it's the preaching. I think that's part of it. I'd like to think that's part of it today. <laughs> How about the cell group ministry? Yeah, those are participating in cell groups are are finding this really great place of community with one another to talk and pray together. Or maybe it's. After the communion service, prayer teams out there. Yeah, it's that too. Yes, yes, yes to all of it and more. And so we were meeting as a staff in the fifth hour of Asbury's experience in the afternoon. They haven't experienced a revival on their campus in over 50 years. Clear preaching, prayer, Confession, healing, praise. If you want to see it, you can pull up your phones and open Facebook and plug in the search bar, Asbury University. 
and you will see hundreds of posts and pictures and live feeds of what's going on right now. It's happening right now. So while not directly writing about revival, James is writing about revival. I'm not sure he would have even understood that word, maybe, but he ends his epistle by saying that the church must be about prayer and healing and confession and praise. And so tonight, I want to make a bold ask of you. I cannot fabricate revival. Let's just get that out of the way. I can't do that. I don't have the power to do it. Only the Lord has the power to do revival, to bring revival. And, you know, the Lord does what he wants. But I believe that God wants his people to walk in righteousness and holiness. He wants all of his people to come to him and find that there is rest and healing and wholeness and renewal in Jesus. Sin separates. It always does. The temptation in the garden occurs when Satan speaks alone to Eve and presents to her an idea that seems interesting. She takes some of the fruit and eats it and then gives some to her husband. They weren't together in that temptation. Sin always separates us and divides us. And when we give in to sin, it further separates us and divides us because once we give in, it convicts us. You're no good. You're not worthy. You can't be a good Christian or a Christian at all. You shouldn't go to church or be part of this community. It separates us. And so we put up walls and we pretend that we've got it all together. And we don't. We stuff our feelings. We don't live authentically before each other, pushing the reality away that we aren't perfect and need help. And in doing so, we don't allow God's good work to be seen in us. We, we veil God's glorious freedom in front of us and even begin to doubt it in the first place. And then we don't walk in love. Let me say again, I cannot fabricate revival. But what I can do tonight, right now, is to encourage you to open your hearts to the Lord. To make space for him to engage you as you are a broken sinner in need of grace. Allow God's healing and invite the vitality of Christ into your life. Please don't respond in your hearts with the idea of once saved, always saved. It's true, but calloused. Perhaps a better thing to say would be once saved, always being saved. It's ongoing. We need more. We need more. I need more. All of the revivals of the last hundreds of years began clearly with a word of God for our lives and then being convicted of our sin and repenting of that sin and begging God to clean and heal and restore and praising God for his character and love who brings salvation through his own hurt and restores to new eternal life in Christ. Friends, that is for you tonight. Come and get it. Don't wait. There's not a better time. So tonight I'm going to invite you to the altar to meet God wherever you find yourself. He knows that. He wants you there. He wants you to experience him 
He wants to give you his life and his true freedom and a new and refreshed life in Christ. So come to the altar for prayer. Come for confession and come to praise God. Because James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. They took your life. They could not take your